I just want to say, by the way, I'm Ken Jones. If you're new here, we welcome you, and we are so glad that you're with us. And um, if you're if you're not new here, I encourage you and hope you'll uh, say hello to somebody you've never met this morning. Um, I wanted to just say, actually, Rob must have just exited stage left, but uh, I'll just say this about about Rob. Rob mentioned at the front end, and most of you know this, he's one of the pastor elders here, and he has been for, for several years, and uh, serving with him has been wonderful. It, you know, he, he um, to a certain degree, this is overstatement, but we had to sort of like drag him into the role to a certain degree, um, but his... Um, his service in that capacity has been wonderful for us. And those of you who have gotten to hear him preach a bit the, for the last few months, um, that was the first time he'd ever done that. And that was another thing that he did with uh, lots of encouragement from others and trepidation in himself. But um, if this is recorded, you can play it for him later on. Thanks, Christy. Um, This morning, we're continuing our series in the book of Acts. This morning's story finds Paul imprisoned in Caesarea, where he's been for the past two years. Felix put him there. Um, Felix has been replaced by Festus, the the new governor of the province. I won't be reading all of the text. If you want to follow along, we're in Acts 25, verses 1 through 22. And um, I'm just going to kind of tell the story, bits and pieces of it. But you can follow along if you want to read more. The first three verses tell us that uh, on his arrival in Palestine, Festus went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And while he was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case before Paul. Um, They deceitfully asked him to bring Paul to Jerusalem for trial so that they could ambush him and kill him on the way, way there. Uh, Festus said, no, but I'm, I'm going to be in Caesarea. I'm going to go back again. If you want, have the leading men come to uh, Caesarea with me, and if there's anything wrong with Paul, you can bring the charges against him. Well, about two weeks later, they're in Caesarea, and Festus took his seat on the judgment seat and ordered Paul to be brought for questioning. And the Jews, who had come down from Jerusalem, stood around Paul and brought many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Then in verses 8 through 11, Paul argued in his defense that he had committed no offense against the Jews, the law of the Jews, against the temple, or against Caesar. And if there's nothing to these charges, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus said, okay, to Caesar you will go. That sets up some of the storyline that we're going to be hearing in the, in the coming weeks, Paul's going to Caesar in Rome. In verses 13 through 22, we read that Festus told this information to King Agrippa and his wife Bernice, who had come down from Jerusalem to Caesarea for a visit on the coast. And in verse 15, Festus explained to Agrippa that he had recently gone to Jerusalem and that while he was there, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out a case against Paul asking for a sentence of condemnation against Paul. That's, that's a sentence of death. And in verses 18 and 19, Festus further explained to King Agrippa that when he brought Paul and his accusers to Caesarea, the Jewish accusers didn't really have any accusations of actually any wrongdoing. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with Paul about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead 
but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Let's pray. Living God, our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, we ask you to speak to us this morning. As we consider a few elements of this story, Lord, help it not just be historically interesting. Help it to be relevant to our lives today. Help us to press into our life in you and learn of you from this story. Amen. Well, this entire storyline that we've been in for the last few weeks has focused a great deal on this intense opposition. Opposition of the Jewish leaders to Paul and to his gospel. They hated him. They wanted him dead. They hated, this hate had been festering and, and, and for years. If anything, the last two years that, Rom, that Paul has been out of their hair in custody in Caesarea, like days away, it, it seems that, if anything, their determination to him, see him dead might have even increased, which is amazing. They hated Paul for his proclamation of the resurrection of Christ, which has been talked about in the last few weeks. And it didn't help that he had been one of them. <clears throat> he was a learned Pharisee of Pharisees. He once persecuted the church along with them. And like Jesus, was now using their own sacred knowledge to refute their conclusions. But they also hated him for his stance on the law's utter inadequacy to make a person righteous or lead to holy living. This infuriated the Jewish authorities. And that's the thing we're going to focus on today. The specific case that the Jewish leaders laid out against Paul, but first before Claudius Lysus, and then again before Felix, and now before Festus, was very thin in the eyes of Rome. None of those men could, could make sense out of it. And as we read a moment ago, Festus told Agrippa that the Jews simply had points of disputes about their own religion. This whole fracas started back in chapter 21, shortly after Paul got to Jerusalem. And we read in verses 27 and 28, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul in temple and they were, they shouted and seized him. And they said, this is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. Now, where did the Jews from the province of Asia get this idea? That's in the area we now call Turkey. Well, remember at this point, Paul had already been on three missionary journeys. He'd preaching the gospel, starting little churches all over the place, many of them in the province of Asia, and then returning again to strengthen those churches in the gospel. He had also written his, his letter to the churches in Galatia, which is Asia, same area, as well as his long letter to the church in Rome, both of which focused on the great deal on the relationship between believers believers in Jesus, and the law of Moses. So they hated him. They opposed him, wanted him dead because he undermined the importance of the law and by so doing undermined their authority, which was based in the law. Now the Jewish authorities viewed righteousness as a byproduct of living according to the law. But the law was also the foundation and the source of their power, their position, their way of life, their income, everything that mattered to them. And Paul's message threatened every bit of that. But what did Paul actually say and write about the law? At first glance, it can be a little confusing to us as Christians. I mean, it, it, I've been a Christian a very long time, and it's still 
it's, about, it's like trying to parse, what, it, what does he mean to this? Because like the Lord Jesus, Paul never denigrates the law. In Romans 3, he says, it, he speaks of it as the oracles of God. In Romans 7, he says, the law is holy. The commandment is holy. It's righteous. It's good. On the other hand, he claims emphatically in Colossians 2 that the law is completely without power for salvation or holy living. That is, getting saved and being sanctified. Having something happen to you in this moment and then how it plays out in your life. It's powerless. No one can fight sin by trying to live by the law. It's not our efforts to follow the law that lead to sanctification, to our holy living, to our being set apart to God. All of our individual autonomous efforts to try to be good fail. One way to understand what Paul means by life in the flesh or living by the flesh is life according to self-effort and self-determination. And in Romans 8, it's clear, Paul says, that flesh cannot live a holy life. It cannot love the law of God. Only the life of Christ in us can cause us to fulfill the law. And yet, in Galatians 5, Paul writes about that those who do the works of the flesh, he calls them, and he names a whole bunch, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, recognize any of these? Um, people, those people won't inherit the kingdom of God. And in Galatians 5, he also says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity to, for the flesh, but through, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You will love the, your neighbor as yourself. And at the end of his letter, to Thessalonica, his first letter, he writes, abstain from every form of evil. Well, when we list, read these list of behaviors, we surely think, oh, we've we got to try hard not to do that stuff. And if you're like me, you do do that stuff, and you say, I wish I weren't doing that, and i got to work harder to not do it. While it's true that we should abstain from sin and evil in all its forms, as Paul wrote, if we don't place our trying in the context of everything else that Paul writes, we will fail again and again and again because we can't be good simply by human striving. What then? How do we interpret Paul? Now, today, this is a thumbnail sketch of Paul's, the stuff that drove the Jewish leaders nuts. It's a thumbnail sketch of the things that Paul wrote to us that we have here. And it's important to understand this stuff because we have the same inherent problem as the Jewish leaders had in them. In fact, looking down our noses at the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem is just one example of the folly of trying to live by our own sense of law and self-righteousness. Like the Jewish leaders, we are sons and daughters of Adam, born dead in our sins, according to Paul in Ephesians 2. Well, here's a brief survey, and this is going to feel like, um, it may feel like drinking from a fire hose. All I'm trying to do, we're not going to get deep into the weeds, but I'm just going to hit all these high points about Paul's writing about our relationship to the law. Starting in, in Romans 3, Paul says, all, everybody has sinned and falls short of the glory of God, and no human being will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. You can imagine that that was not a popular thing for the 
Jews, Jewish leaders. In Galatians, he says, who's bewitched you? Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Have you begun by the spirit and now you're going to be perfected by the flesh? Abraham believed God and it was counter to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Something else happened, though, at the cross. He delivered us. We were delivered from slavery to sin. We died on the cross. This is something else. Besides having my sins washed away, we died on the cross and received a new life in the spirit. We just read, we just sang a song that had a verse about that. At the end of Galatians 2, Paul writes this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In Romans 6, he adds this. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would be no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we also live with him. So you all must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you can't, uh, you can't be holy by trying to follow the law. Nobody ever, it's only by faith. And there's this wonderful reality that something died on the cross with Jesus other than him. And that's our, that's something about ourselves. Well, chapter seven, <clears throat> I don't even have to read all this. Chapter seven of Romans uh, rings true to probably every one of us in this room who've ever read it. Paul knows, he says, I don't even understand my own actions. I do, I don't do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I don't do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want and no longer I who do it, it is sin in me that does it. He adds in in Romans 8 um, that the mind set in the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to the law, and it cannot. I want to just say this, because this is essential to what Paul, I think, is writing. Paul wasn't preaching an improved self-life. He wasn't preaching a self-life empowered by the Holy Spirit or the life of Adam empowered by the Holy Spirit. Something Adam is, the first Adam is done, the second Adam is here. Well, if not by the law, then what is Paul saying to us about how we'll live? What does it mean to live by faith? What, if the law still matters to God, if it's still holy, it's still righteous, It's still the oracles of God. And holy living matters to God. We ought to abstain from evil. We ought to turn from evil in every way. How on earth do we have any hope of fulfilling the law? Paul answers those questions in part in Romans 8. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And listen to this. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the spirit. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. In Galatians 5, he echoes that. Walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We have a brand new life and a brand new way to live that completely replaces the old. That central idea is core of what it means to be a Christian and to live the Christian life. It's not the works of the law that save, and it is not the works of law that sanctify daily, but continuing faith in the person and the work of Christ Jesus, who lives in us in spirit. By the way, I just want to say a quick word about that. I I was asked a question last week because I referred to the indwelling Christ. I referred to the life inside of us in a a variety of ways. And someone asked me, are there, is the spirit in us and Christ in us? And and I just want you to know that that when I speak of God being in you, you have the life of God, you have the life of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, Christ lives in you. Those are all multiple ways to say the exact same thing. There isn't, there aren't multiple spirits. There aren't multiple gods. There's one God, and he is Father, Son, and Spirit. And Paul refers to how he lives in us using all of those names at different times. Well, the Jewish authorities hated Paul for this. And my question is, what about you and me? Is it even relevant to us? We don't, we don't try to live by the Jewish law. We don't, most of us don't even know a whole lot about it. But in the absence of Jewish law, do we find or create a new law to live by? The world we live in is full of rules regarding acceptable human behavior. And right now, it's full of a bunch that are brand new. There are variations on an old theme, but do this, don't do that. In In the matter of what you should eat or not eat, in the matter of what you should wear or not wear, what you should drive, is it too expensive? It is, not, is it proper? Is it fat fueled by the right kind of fuel? Uh, what you believe about politics, economics, all sorts of social issues, what you're permitted to think and say out loud, those are rules that come down on us. There's this whole new religion that has risen in some circles around these things. Um, and the unconverted are living in moral lives by making the wrong kinds of decisions and thinking and saying the wrong kinds of things. It may sound like a contradiction, but we fallen, rebellious humans love law because we like to have a law we can hold on to, that we can live up to, that we can do in order to feel good about ourselves, a law that we can compare ourselves to others with as lesser than ourselves, a law that where we can find, like the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, power, place, meaning, putting it on myself, putting it on others, even as I violate it uh, quite often. Well, Paul would decry that kind of living, and does in Colossians 2, um, as much as, as living by the law of Moses. Any kind of law is not a path to righteousness. But his words are to us, those who claim to follow Christ. Paul never tried to fix the world. 
He didn't try to fix it by any means other than preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified, living by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up that we might live to God. So I'm not here bashing the culture. I'm not up here saying, oh, those people. The world, that the world opposes God and his kingdom and the Lord Jesus is not new. It's just, you know, you get a different flavor. I'm speaking to us. Am I the kind of person who puts strange rules on myself? How many of the rules that are being bandied about all the time in the culture right now do I put on myself and put on others? Rules that have no connection to the life of Christ, life in the spirit. Am I that person or am am I a person who preaches life in Christ in the name of Jesus Christ? That's the only place that any of us will ever find life. Is that where my focus is? When you and I find ourselves adapting our lives to these strictures in the world or the culture or religion or whatever in a way that that have been dreamed up in order to, like the Jews, like the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, create a sense of place and purpose and meaning and power, we land squarely in the same place that they were. And Paul repeatedly is urging us to lean into what it means to walk in the Spirit. One other thing I want to say, and I need to say this for a handful of people in this room, and I don't even know who you are. Um, What does it mean to have died in Christ or that I no longer live? I want you to to understand that the new man, the new Adam, The last Adam, those are all ways that Christ is described, is Christ. But his outworking is still in you and me. It's you. You personally. You, Stephen. He knows your name. It's you that the Lord loves. It's you that he came and died for. He knows your name, each of you. He's not looking to obliterate you. He came and died that you might have the life that you were created for, that Christ himself might be formed in you. But rebellious autonomy, which is another way, a fancy way of saying sin, always leads to death. We're not created to be autonomous. We're created to be completely and always and forever dependent on the Lord Jesus and to have God himself as our life. That doesn't eliminate our personality. It doesn't eliminate our agency. It gives it context. It gives it healthy, life-giving context. It means that the things that I choose in Christ actually have something to do with what God is doing. It's part of what God's doing, rather than simply something I've chosen to do on my own and then ask God to bless. So press in. Press in to who he is. Lord, help me to press into who you are and what you're doing. Find your place in his story. Follow his lead, living by his spirit that he has put within you. Be free from the law. Walk in the freedom of the life you have in Christ. When you find yourself putting some kind of law on yourself or someone else, call out to Jesus. A law that is designed in order to make you holy, righteous, acceptable. There's one thing that makes you acceptable, and it's done, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you on the cross. 
So call out to the Lord Jesus. Thank him for the blood and for the freedom in Christ that you have in him. And carry on. Practice this. Set your mind constantly on the spirit of Christ and find life and peace. Practice consciously considering yourself dead to sin and alive to God and look for ways in which you return to living by law in order to be righteous. Looking to be perfected by your own human effort so that you can turn from that hopeless effort and come again to the living Christ as your life and your full provision. Let's pray. This prayer I'm going to read comes from 1 Thessalonians 5. Lord Jesus, help us not to be idle. Help us to encourage the weak and faint-hearted among us. Help us to be patient with one another. Help each of us never to repay anyone evil for evil, but always to seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Lord Jesus, help us to rejoice always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. O Lord, help us not to quench the spirit, but help us to abstain from every form of evil. God of peace, set us apart to yourself completely, that our whole spirit, soul, and body may be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are the one who called us, and you are faithful. You will surely do it. Amen. Thank you, Ken. Um, We're going to transition to take communion together. So if, um, if there's a few LT members around who can come up and grab the elements and start handing them out. That would be great. Thank you, Shauna and Doug. (laughs) Um, We do this every week. Um, I'm going to say just a brief brief word about it as Doug and Shauna are handing them out. I'd ask you to wait until they've made it around the room so that everyone, we like to do it together, so wait until everyone has received a cup, um, and I'll guide you through taking them together. Um, But, just in thinking about what Ken shared about transformation and the law's inability to really transform and uh, Christ's ability to transform us, um, it's interesting to reflect on that more as we take communion. Um, and, you know, major theological disputes have raged over the centuries on what communion means, um, what actually is about to happen as we take these elements and I'm not going to wade into that too much other than to say I um, like to think of it as a mystery, honestly. Um, you know, people have fought literal wars over over things like this. What, you know, is this does this juice and wafer literally turn into flesh and blood, or is it just an empty symbol? And I prefer to say, call us back to it's a mystery. Um, there's a mysterious work that God does. Um, in transformation. And I encourage you to reflect on, just reflect on anything Ken shared this morning that stirred you. Um, Bring that to the Lord. Um, And I encourage you also to think about this and what it represents and points to as a real broken body and real spilled blood that really does bring about new life for us. Um, Points to something real that happened 
on a cross 2,000 years ago. And it points to what we believe in faith really does change us, as Ken talked about. Um, so um, as Ethan plays a little bit on the guitar, I'm just going to give us 30 seconds or so to reflect, to meditate, to pray. Um, and then I'll guide us to take this together. Go ahead and open the top um, of your cup. I'm going to read a few verses from the Gospel of Luke. After I finish reading them, I invite you to dip the wafer into the juice um, and eat and drink. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. I encourage you to, as Ken did, insert your name there, which is poured out for Joel. <laughs> put that, put that, put your name in that as you pray that and you take this together. But take and eat and drink. Pray with me. Lord, I pray you would do that powerful work of transformation amongst us. Um, the thing which the law, um, the thing which the law could not accomplish, we know you did and can and do accomplish. And Lord, I, I pray that we would receive that, rightly receive that well in faith this morning. Would you keep doing a work amongst us, make us a renewed community in the midst of so much that's going on uh, in our culture and in this world right now, so much hurt uh, and loss. Um, may we be people of peace and people of renewed life, putting on the new Adam, a new life in Christ. In your holy name we pray, amen.